Ambassador Emily Habert has been German Ambassador to the United States since 2018. Prior to her transfer to Washington, D.C., she served in various leadership functions at the Foreign Office in Berlin. In 2009, she was appointed Political Director and, in 2011, State Secretary, the first woman to hold either post. Today, she will discuss the German government's approach to the COVID-19 pandemic and what they're doing to protect their citizens and economy. Let's listen in. So we are honored to have you here representing in the U.S. as you have uh, since uh, uh, June of 2018, uh, Germany, uh, which is uh, clearly one of the, our, our closest allies in the world and also one of the most important bilateral relationships um, we have and one we have confidence in as we go forward. So uh, really you can talk about whatever you'd like. Of course, we're interested in a little more than we get from the media about what seems to be the uh, a successful uh, governmental and societal response in Germany to the uh, uh, pandemic, uh, both um, in terms of public health and the economy. And then th this is a lively group that will have a lot of questions and we'll uh, look forward to that. So Ambassador Emily Hoberts, our great honor to have you before this No Labels group. Thank you. Thank you, Senator, and uh, thank you for having me for uh, today's uh, discussion. Whenever I hear about uh, the alleged um, success story, you know, Senator, I push back because uh, we have, after all, over 170,000 people who've been infected. That's not a small number. We're number four, I think, or five in Europe. Uh, and we have over 7,000 people who have died. So we are among the most affected uh, countries in Europe. There's no doubt about that. Um, we have had a head start on uh, testing uh, and we had a head start on building up our hospital, uh, especially uh, the intensive care uh, units. Uh, as of January, we, we nearly uh, increased uh, these uh, intensive care care units by 50%, uh, including the respirators, etc. And we had a pandemic uh, strategy in uh, place, which allowed us uh, to move forward directly without having any discussions on uh, who's going to pay for the testing, et cetera. So in, for the rest of it, we've done what the United States have done, and that is uh, there was a lockdown, social distancing, hygiene uh, measures, uh, um, contact tracing, testing, testing, testing. So that's more or less the same. And the curve has flattened. We're now at R0, uh, uh, 1.07%. Uh, which is a critical number because the Chancellor has said all along that you can start to incrementally reopen the society if you are at um, a reproduction rate of one, that is one person infects another one or lower. Um, and that's where we are right now, but it's fragile. Uh, and we've seen after the first reopenings uh, um, since Monday, but there have been some uh, um, uh, uh, small steps before that already, that the R0 has grown a bit. Um, there is a consensus among uh, the prime ministers of the federal state and the um, central level, uh, that is Berlin, uh, that uh, if you uh, overstep the march of 50 people infected over seven days, uh, 
um, uh, at a capita of uh, 20,000, then you need to return to the status quo until that is returned to a lockdown measures. And that happens in two districts right now. And these are specific cases, uh, cases you cannot extrapolate, but it just goes to, to show um, you how uh, fragile and critical the situation is. Now, um, given all the measures we've taken, uh, we are in economic terms as much affected as you are. We will be seeing a downturn of the German economy at about 6.4% uh, across the year 2020. That's a lot. Our export, our trades, uh, uh, trade will drop to 11 uh, at a space uh, at a rate of 11 point something, 6%. So that's a lot. Uh, for um, a globalized economy uh, as uh, uh, Germany is. Um, we've taken a number of steps and we have, um, um, have a number of structures in place that allowed us to mitigate uh, the uh, economic impact of the crisis. The first one is um, we had a structure of um, social and labor market measures in place that we needed just to uh, revitalize. They were in place since the um, Great Recession of 2008. And what we needed to do now was just to uh, uh, make them spring into action once again. We set up um, a huge uh, support package uh, of 1.2 trillion. Uh, which uh, allows um, people who are um, uh, self-employed uh, or are freelancers uh, or low-income uh, uh, earners uh, to, um, uh, to, to um, be entitled to um, uh, benefits. Uh, in addition, we've made money available to the uh, big uh, companies and corporates uh, in terms of uh, guarantees and loans, etc. But, and we had um, uh, automatic uh, stabilizers uh, in the fiscal system, which means lower taxes if the economy go to, goes down and more benefits if the uh, economy uh, uh, goes down, etc. That happens automatically. You don't need to take uh, any decisions, let alone uh, adopt uh, laws. But the most important uh, step we've taken, and that uh, came from um, what we uh, um, had put in place in 2008, is uh, the short-term uh, working allowance, which means that uh, if a company does not have, uh, cannot employ people anymore or cannot pay them anymore and have their own part-time uh, working hours or no working hours at all, then the state, ste the state steps in. And the state pays up to 60% and up to uh, for someone who's single and up to 67% for someone who's got a family uh, of the wage the employer otherwise would uh, 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 pay, which means uh, that he doesn't have to dismiss the people and they're ready for his uh, uh, labor market needs the moment uh, the, re, um, uh, the, the um, economy rebounds again. And we have increased uh, uh, eligibility uh, for these benefits uh, and they will actually be enhanced after six months uh, when they will grow up to 80 um, uh, uh, or 87% in the case of uh, families. And then yet one other difference is, yeah, we locked down our economy for restaurants and for, for all businesses that actually deal with clients, but we didn't lock down the economy for industries. 
That doesn't mean uh, that all the industries kept uh, uh, were up and running uh, throughout the lockdown. No, there were industries that were dependent on value chains uh, or uh, uh, um, uh, were burdened with healthcare risk, uh, uh, risks. But all in all, uh, the industry kept uh, running, which means uh, that the costs for returning to work uh, will not be as large. So that's more or less what we did nationally. Um, but obviously, we're in a crisis uh, where whatever we do nationally is simply not sufficient because we're part of a much larger picture. And we will be revisited by the, uh, by the virus once the borders are open, travel is uh, possible again. So it was clear, not entirely from the outset, but already in the early weeks, that whatever we do nationally is only part of the picture. Um, with whatever we do beyond that will be important for the way we fare in the long run as well. And here is where Europe uh, comes in. I know there's the narrative out there uh, uh, that Europe has uh, failed miserably, uh, my country included, or perhaps my country first and foremost, uh, in the early weeks of the crisis. And it, I'm, I'm ready to admit that this was not an hour of glory, because it's true. In such a crisis, what you tend to do is you first fend for yourself. And if other countries are or you, you call for support and you don't get it, this is the impression that will remain, or at least for a while. So this was the early story. It wasn't um, the bigger story and it wasn't the uh, following chapters, because then my country uh, has mustered all uh, the force it had in order to support other European countries. We weren't the only ones in doing that. Other European countries did as well. Um, in supporting them in medical terms with equipment, hospital beds, we treated patients uh, in, in Germany. And beyond that, in, on the economic front, we altered uh, the uh, economic support trajectory entirely. We put up a huge uh, economic stimulus uh, package, a recovery package, uh, um, uh, uh, designed uh, to make liquidity uh, available, designed to uh, support uh, short, uh, short working hours allowances as we have them, uh, in Germany, uh, uh, to support uh, uh, countries uh, and companies uh, in need. The central bank uh, made liquidity uh, available, the European Investment Bank. And we're now uh, in the process of discussing yet an uh, another uh, recovery uh, uh, package. We practically uh, jettisoned uh, all the conditions uh, um, uh, that were the legacy uh, of our uh, European support thinking uh, in 2008 when we had Troikas and uh, the Commission uh, austerity uh, programs, conditions, etc., uh, supervision. All of that, none of that exists in this case. We have flexibilized uh, uh, our procedure, our, uh, where we come from, uh, and we've flexibilized uh, the rules of the Stability Pact uh, uh, too. So what the perspective is here, or the vantage point, uh, point is here in the United States, that Europe uh, has been fragmented uh, in confronting the crisis. Yes, it's true for the early weeks, but it isn't true for where we are now. Now, Europe, yet again, is just another stepping stone. There is the next stepping stone, and that is um, even if beyond Europe, if we do things well in Europe, it will not suffice uh, because it's global. And it's not only a global health crisis, it's a global economic crisis, uh, it's a global infodemic uh, crisis. If you see in 
Germany on the streets, you see right-wing groups and left-wing groups who uh, shout at policemen and say the virus is completely invented. And they get that from these, uh, um, these fringes networks uh, that seem to me to be designed uh, to create false uh, and divisive narratives, uh, um, um, weakening uh, actually what we can do in the face of uh, a crisis. And I haven't mentioned the debt crisis that is looming in the background too. And all of that will require from us a high degree of coordination. Um, uh, in Europe, beyond the European Union, uh, uh, globally. We've seen a um, conference in um, a, a, a virtual uh, conference, obviously, uh, by leaders um, uh, upon the invitation of the European Commission early last week, uh, designed to uh, um, support uh, the global effort uh, to find vaccines, to make them avail available, to make available therapeutics, uh, diagnostics, and to support uh, the country uh, that are uh, the countries that are most vulnerable uh, and um, affected by the uh, uh, by the um, health crisis. But going beyond there will mean and entail uh, huge economic efforts as well. And so far, the European Commission and its member countries um, uh, have uh, announced they will make available 20 uh, 22 billion euros uh, for this uh, global uh, support effort. I haven't mentioned one elephant in the room uh, during the crisis, which is China. And I will just say this. Um, I believe from how China acts right now, its pitch and tone, its threats, its lack of transparency, um, also, to some degree, it's soft power. It's clear to me uh, that the Chinese profile um, as being a um, systemic rival and uh, um, strategic uh, competitor uh, is rising. But the fact remains, um, we'll have to deal with China. And if I hear some of the decoupling discussions uh, here, I always wonder. I'm never quite clear what they mean. Do they mean a partial rollback? Uh, of dependencies uh, in the tech sector and the medical sector in uh, therapeutics, medical equipment, or does it go beyond it? Does it take the long view uh, that we actually need to separate global universes, uh, which um, for me in my country uh, would be a difficult uh, notion because after all, there's so many issues we'll have to deal uh, with China, uh, simply because um, they're either too big to ignore uh, or the, the problems are too big uh, to be dealt with in isolation, from climate to standards on, uh, um, on um, uh, AI, or um, for finding out what actually happened and what triggered the crisis and what are the reasons uh, that actually allowed the spread of the virus uh, and prevented early preparation of other countries uh, that were on the receiving end uh, of uh, decisions uh, that have been taken in China or the lack of these decisions. And we need clarity about that. But it seems obvious to me uh, that um, clarity will, will not reach that by only calling out or announcing uh, or indicating punitive act. We'll get clarity only if we retain the diplomatic space uh, in getting China to engage. 
if we don't if we don't achieve that, actually, we'll uh, defeat the very purpose and objective uh, we have, and that we need to attain. And that is getting clarity on what actually happened in order to prepare uh, for what may happen in the future. Uh, thanks, Ambassador. I, I uh, appreciate your remarks very much, including uh, the last uh, section on uh, China and. Um, I agree with you uh, in the sense that the, the Chinese government does things that uh, arouse uh, suspicion in us, even grounds for opposition, and we should express that. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid, and, and this has something to do probably with this being an election year here, that there's going to be a, a competition uh, in, among, among a lot of American politicians to see who can be more against China. And the danger there is that uh, action will be taken that will uh, uh, bring us into a, a, a more global, or let's not put it that way, but a, but a broader conflict with China, something like a Cold War, which uh, is really counterproductive um, for us, let alone China and the rest of the world. and. Um, unnecessary and it's not the place to talk about it but but our relationship with the Chinese certainly economically is so dramatically different so much more uh, uh, so much more mutual uh, benefit and uh, we're so much more entangled with them than we ever were with Russia or the Soviet Union so I, I appreciate what you've said I want to ask the first question and then open it up um, there have been some uh, comment lately uh, some, honestly, from Democrats who are targeting the administration, but the, the more substantive, serious ones, I think, are from uh, analysts writing uh, or speaking out, which is that, uh, that our allies around the world feel that we in the United States have not been leading the global effort uh, against uh, the COVID-19 pandemic as they would expect us to um, I suppose in many ways, one including um, uh, aid programs for uh, other countries, uh, poorer countries in the world that will be affected badly by it. So I know that's a difficult question and awkward diplomatically, but from the European perspective, which is our sort of extended family, would you say that there is a feeling that the U.S. has not provided the kind of global uh, leadership in this pandemic that uh, our friends in Europe expected or hoped for? Um, well, there are different ways to um, answer this question, uh, obviously, and I'll start with one. Uh, if you look at uh, what the United States actually does in order to support uh, countries uh, that are affected, if you look at the absolute numbers uh, uh, of uh, programs uh, with support, uh, and that's uh, well over two billion, you can certainly say that uh, America is among the leading countries uh, in trying to uh, confront uh, the crisis. If you look at all the um, fora where we uh, discuss uh, um, and exchange in the G7 format where uh, the United States uh, is in the chair right now, or uh, G20, uh, in, um, in the context between the health ministries uh, of Western countries uh, with um, uh, the State Department and foreign ministry, you would see a lot, a great degree of interaction uh, 
which actually uh, contradicts uh, the argument uh, um, and that the United States uh, is um, uh, going it alone. But what I also note is that while we do see a lot of interaction, I don't necessarily see a great deal of coordination. I'd call it differently. I'd call it a transparency on correlated action, which may be sufficient uh, if, um, as we are countries which are affected in similar ways. This will alter, by the way. This will alter uh, once the most affected countries become the poorest countries because the problems they face will not be the problems we've been facing uh, 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 during the crisis. Um, I have mentioned already uh, uh, the, um, uh, the uh, conference uh, uh, that was hosted by the European, uh, uh, European Union, along with a number of co-hosts, co Germany among them, Norway and Saudi Arabia, 40 countries all in all. And the observation is in place that two of the countries that are most affected right now, uh, and that is the United States and Russia in absolute numbers only, um, were not present. There were Americans present, uh, but uh, the, uh, um, the United States and Russia were absent in an effort uh, uh, to define um, the shared responsibility uh, in tackling not only the health uh, challenge uh, of this crisis, but also uh, uh, the economic impact and its uh, uh, ramifications. 40 countries, uh, 40, China was present. China was present and pledged 45, uh, 45 million, which is um, ridiculous, uh, not least given uh, where the uh, virus actually originated from uh, and to what degree uh, the handling of the crisis and the transmer uh, transparency of it uh, um, had an impact uh, um, on us, but it was present. Uh, um, indicating uh, uh, thereby, uh, I made, uh, uh, completely insufficiently, uh, 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 that it was going to uh, uh, adhere any mechanism uh, designed to find shared and coordinated responses. Uh, responses on the vaccine, responses on uh, medicine, response in, uh, responses on diagnostics, and which is most important, uh, responses uh, to uh, make available the vaccines uh, uh, that we hope to have in the uh, near future uh, across uh, the world and not only nationally, wherever they are being developed. I don't know, uh, does this answer your question? Yes, you did. <laughs> you gave me a lot to take from. I got it. Thank you. Uh, uh, Liz, I see Don Upton has a question. Are there others before him or is that a, okay? Don, please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for being with us, Ambassador. I have a question. Uh, my team sees three related tsunamis of problems coming up for us in America, and one of them is related to the justice system. So I'm always listening for best practices and successes. So my question is, in the midst of all this, we're seeing the justice system on a local level, especially grind to a halt, which is going to create a tsunami of problems. I'm curious, how how is the regional and, and uh, uh, national level justice system performing. And I put along with that, the overall fundamental government transactions. I guess it's a question about the digitalization and the resiliency of your justice system and government system ability to operate at this time. Um, that is a very good question indeed. I tried to find out today uh, uh, whether, for example, our parliament is in a position uh, to already take uh, 
um, legislative uh, action um, by uh, digital voting, which is not uh, the case. When they met uh, and uh, they actually met uh, in uh, in person and combined that with uh, mitigation and distancing uh, uh, rules. Uh, I would assume that the same is true uh, for the courts. Uh, and I would also assume uh, that the time uh, gap uh, that we see uh, will mean that we'll, uh, there will be a huge backlog uh, of cases uh, um, that need to be uh, dealt after the uh, backlog. But uh, we've made uh, some experiences uh, during the uh, migration crisis in uh, 2015, uh, because there uh, the huge rise in, uh, in immigrants that came and therefore cases that had to be dealt in immigration courts made it possible for us to prepare for unexpected for unexpected situations. So I do hope that this experience will be some of the lessons learned, even though at the time it wasn't digitization that was actually the problem. It was the structure of the system and the flexibility of it. But what we will have learned from the crisis is that it will give a huge boost uh, to uh, uh, digital practices, provided uh, you can be assured of the security of the systems. Because if it gives a huge boost uh, to digital uh, governance, it will also give a boost to those who uh, wish to attack uh, uh, digital governance. So both aspects need to uh, be thought uh, at the same time. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I've got Richard Livermore next. Does that sound right? Okay. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Dick Livermore. Uh, I'm a retired Superior Court judge from Silicon Valley, California. And uh, my next door neighbor is the head of Apple's uh, Nearfield Technology Trace Testing Program. Uh, and, I, and I heard that maybe there's been some pushback from Germany uh, as to the, the, the platform for this uh, Nearfield Testing. Well, what's the latest on that? Okay, yes. Uh, we had a discussion, uh, obviously we would, uh, on uh, tracing uh, per app. Now, Germany is one of the countries who had uh, the, uh, was one of the first countries to have data protection laws uh, for reasons I needn't explain to anyone because they are related to the echoes of our history, uh, both uh, Eastern uh, Germany history and early and, and uh, history during the Third Reich. Data protection is something that is hugely important to Germans. And that's something that is historically understandable. So when we had in the uh, in the crisis a discussion on having an app um, managed by the central government uh, um, where all the data would uh, uh, would be collected, uh, this was the first, uh, you see, um, a decision uh, the health ministry was heading for. Uh, it produced an outcry and a pushback. And um, the government immediately realized because uh, um, it was obvious to everyone uh, that this debate uh, uh, could undermine uh, the uh, consensus that previously existed in, in actually accepting uh, um, harsh, uh, um, uh, harsh demands by government to stay at home, to quarantine, not to visit your grandmother, etc., etc. So the decision that was taken then was, yes, we pursue an app, it will be voluntary, Voluntary. It will be Telecom and another company uh, that will produce the app, which will happen early uh, June. Uh, the data will not be centrally accept, uh, accessible, uh, and um, but it will be uh, an additional instrument to allow for contact tracing. 
And I haven't said this before, but for opening, reopening the society, two elements are crucial for the uh, German government. One is testing and one is contact tracing. Now, uh, we have, I think, <laughs> the highest testing rate per capita uh, worldwide. And on contact tracing, this was something we did very early on. And we have stepped up uh, our health offices uh, um, we have several thousand people, or will be having them uh, uh, shortly, uh, that do nothing but contact tracing uh, uh, of people um, who've been infected. So we try to do both. We try to do a voluntary, uh, uh, pursue uh, uh, the objective of a voluntary testing app, and we try to do actual personnel-driven contact tracing uh, by the health offices. And um, that needs to work. We have about 50 people per 20,000. Is that true? No, no, quite. Five people per 20,000, which makes several thousand uh, across Germany. So they're both. We do it digitally, uh, digitally uh, albeit voluntarily. I think it will be accepted if it's voluntarily. Uh, we have um, thereby leveled the discontent uh, of any such uh, um, road uh, chosen, and we uh, are complementing it by uh, um, uh, old-fashioned contact tracing in the real world. Uh, thanks, Sylvester. I'm, I'm uh, delighted to call on Congressman Don Bacon from Nebraska, who uh, we're very uh, grateful as a leader in our bipartisan uh, U.S. House Problem Solvers Caucus. Don, Thank you, Senator Lieberman. Uh, by the way, I'm a big fan of the senator, and I want to thank the ambassador for coming on and your, your wonderful candor. Really appreciate it. And I just want to take a moment, too, to thank uh, you and the German people. I was the commander at Ramstein Air Force Base back in 2008-9 time frame, and the hospitality uh, and the friendliness that was extended to all of us were just second to none, first rate. And we couldn't do what we do in the world without the, the close partnership with Germany. And so I wanted to thank you for that. You sort of addressed the question I had on China. I wanted to maybe just probe a little deeper, if I may. You know, I remember Ronald Reagan in front of the Berlin Wall talking about the evil empire in the Soviet Union, and they had a more profound impact than most people realized. So we talked about the values and what we're seeing with China with suppressing the media and the, the doctors and the truth for about a month and a half. I wonder if was, maybe we think too much of the trade, a lot of these other things, but maybe we could be a little more simple and just a little spotlight on their values versus our values. And I think it's important you get in the island nations of the Pacific that they respond to that. So just curious to your thoughts on that. We couldn't be a little more, just more in the more, more informational, putting a spotlight on the differences of their system versus our system. Boy, thank you for being on today. Thank you, uh, Congressman. And uh, I think it's a case of uh, having the cake uh, and actually eating it. Uh, of course, we should be candid on uh, our values and what we stand for and our collective identity, because that's part of the normative clout we have uh, among, uh, well, across the world. And the norm uh, among the uh, factors that are relevant in the normative cloud interaction uh, that we have is actually the way we deal with one another. Because a country like China, and for that matter, Russia too, they don't have allies, <laughs> they don't have alliances, uh, they're actually alone. And uh, I have uh, served in the Soviet Union and I've served in uh, Russia later on. And what I took home as a memory uh, was the knowledge that the fact, uh, no, the way we interact as allies um, with a shared sense of purpose and a shared sense of what we actually want to be is part of something uh, that they want to attack 
because it's um, it's a threatening uh, uh, normative attraction. So yes, uh, you're right. But it's also true that if we focus exclusively on that in a world uh, that is not controlled by policemen and by judges, uh, uh, we will not retain the diplomatic space we also need. Um, the diplomatic and diplom diplomacy basically means uh, you will not uh, will not enforce principles. Um, but you will make compromises. I know this doesn't sound uh, as attractive, but it actually sometimes gets things done. So my suggestion is uh, um, don't give any discount on uh, uh, values and principles. Uh, be outspoken about it. Uh, let's be self-assured of uh, how attractive we actually are because we can make choices and we want to other people to make choices too. But in the real world, uh, we'll also have to make some compromises and uh, deal uh, um, uh, with uh, actors or partners uh, with whom we don't agree, but whom we need in order to achieve objectives uh, that we happen to find important. I'm, I'm not quite sure whether this was a satisfactory answer, but it was a very honest one. <laughs> it was. Uh, Congressman, you probably heard this story, but to hear you uh, remind us of when Ronald Reagan uh, gave that speech calling the Soviet Union the evil empire. In the book that Natan Sharansky read after uh, he uh, was liberated from the Soviet gulag, uh, he describes how he was losing hope that he'd ever get out. And word reached him that uh, President Reagan had called the Soviet Union an evil empire. And it, uh, it gave him hope. Yes. That him. Yeah, it's a great story. Senator, so, I was thinking, I was exactly thinking that when I asked the question. Yeah, so thank you. Thank, thank you. Uh, I, may I just add to that? That was my experience in the 1980s as well, that people slowly, it didn't happen overnight, but it certainly happened after 1985, uh, that people were empowered by the knowledge uh, uh, that the um, human rights revolution had actually reached international politics. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, here, here. Thank you. Uh, Glenn Lowenstein is next, I believe. Um, first of all, it's it's an honor to be on the call with you, Senator Lieberman. You are one of my heroes. And um, thank you very much, Ambassador, that what you just went through in this uh, described in the spirit of compromise and so on is actually why we're all on the phone here. And in your opening remarks, you mentioned the right and left wing and what they're doing in the face of this pandemic. I suspect that in your country, you also have some polarization. And I was wondering if you could give us any observations on any success that you've had in your country that could help us here on finding middle ground in domestic politics. Um, yes, we have polarization in Germany too. It is, um, people always talk about polarization as if it was a one-size-fits-it-all phenomenon. In the German case, uh, the uh, populist movement uh, was first born by the um, fiscal crisis of 2008. It was a euro crisis born uh, um, uh, result and uh, then by the migration crisis uh, in uh, 2015. What we've seen now uh, in the margins of the uh, health crisis uh, and the lockdown is that people rallied around the flag. Uh, the, it has boosted the government's uh, popularity and we certainly saw a, a, not a steep but a relevant and substantial decline of the popularity of the populists. Now, this usually happens uh, 
in the early days uh, of a crisis, uh, so I wouldn't extrapolate. But I find it notable uh, uh, that basically the government has been credited uh, with trust uh, and reliability, and that's why, uh, um, uh, well, people um, did what was expected from them. Now, what worries me uh, of late is the uh, awkward and weird uh, alliance uh, that seems to have emerged uh, um, um, uh, uh, joining uh, radical left people and radical right people uh, in opposing uh, any, uh, um, uh, any requests or guidelines uh, uh, to, um, uh, to uh, observe social distancing, etc. We've seen in the past that this is fueled uh, uh, by um, by bots and uh, by uh, well um, uh, by by actors in the net that are designed uh, to exacerbate uh, uh, polarizations and that are designed to pit people against each other, and that is really worrisome. Um, I, I know that your question didn't deal with that, uh, but I think it's one of the crucial uh, questions we'll have to deal with. Um, in the past, um, when we worried about uh, attacks against the uh, electoral system in the elections of 2017 in Germany, uh, uh, one of our key um, conclusions was, uh, if informations come out there, don't um, focus on the content of the information, focus on the origin and the intent of the information. Uh, I continue to think that this is an important uh, lesson. I don't think it's always an attractive lesson for people who uh, try to focus on the um, on riveting content. Um, but in order to uh, stop the contagion uh, of uh, misleading uh, or polarizing or Hate, uh, um, hate generating uh, um, activities in the net. I think that is important. Thank you. Uh, Bill Goldston, uh, I think you're next. Thank you, Senator and Ambassador. Very good to speak with you again. Good to see you. Uh, uh, in, your, in your opening statement, you were very modest, or should I say very diplomatic, about the performance of your country in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. But I'd like to push you just a little bit farther down that road uh, so that we can understand what you've done uh, and why, in my judgment, it has worked very well. Uh, your death rate is less than one-third the death rate in the United States. It is less than one-quarter the death rate in most of the other large European countries. Uh, and it appears, it appears to me that you were better prepared to meet this crisis than the United States was and many other peer nations in Europe were. Uh, so what is it that enabled you to do better? And I ask that because I think it's very important for us in the United States to learn lessons, which we have not learned from previous pandemics and are now paying the price for not having learned. So that's why I'm pushing you. Well, um, <laughs> um, 
even if pushed, I would say this. Um, it's much too early to be self-congratulatory because it's early days and we're, things may still ha um, may happen uh, um, that will squander the advantages we may have. So I'm very careful because whatever I say in, uh, in bragging mode uh, uh, may revisit uh, my country and me uh, at a later stage. But it's true that we had a head start. We had a head start uh, because one of the um, scientists, uh, we had a German scientist who actually um, did research on uh, the virus and on the different coronavirus, and he had developed, uh, uh, um, even before the WHO had uh, um, decided that this was a human-to-human -human transmission case, uh, he had defined the DNA of the virus and developed a test, which was on, I think, 13th of January, and two days later, the WHO had uh, accepted it, and we then proceed, proceeded to mass produce it, and we have a system of labs across the country, uh, federal labs, 200-300, uh, where these tests could actually be used. So we had a head start on testing. We also had, for the very same reason, uh, a head start in preparing um, the intensive care units. It was one of the reasons why we were criticized, uh, because we had respirators in place, and we really increased them incredibly in order to prepare for what we feared was going to happen, and that is a, a run on the hospitals. This never really occurred because we had so much capacities and we hospitalized people early on. And I'm not a medical doctor, but I know from medical doctors, hospitalizing at an early stage has an impact on how the illness proceeds. It was also a fact that early on, uh, most of the people who were infected were young. There were people who did carnivals, uh, or participated in carnivals in Germany. Yet another mistake we made, we allowed them to happen end of February, uh, just like the Munich Security Conference, uh, by the way, <laughs> Senator. <laughs> uh, um, there were young people who uh, came from, uh, um, from Austria and Italy uh, who had caught the illness and brought them uh, uh, to. And young people, as you know, uh, um, they usually have a milder um, uh, process of the illness. Uh, we knew the, the death rate was very low early on, but we knew it would at some st uh, stage uh, converge. And to what degree it would converge with higher numbers uh, was dependent uh, on our um, um, on available hospital beds and intensive care uh, units. So we were prepared there. And as I said, we had a pandemic strategy in place which had because all decisions were already taken, they just needed to uh, um, uh, be enforced. And in Germany, in the federal system, you have an um, um, institutional setup where you, uh, that uh, um, um, guarantees uh, regular coordination. It's not you just don't call two governors, etc., but it's a, a regular system of meetings uh, and coordinating, and that may have helped as well. So most of the reasons, can, uh, as you can see, uh, um, relate to the institutional uh, setup, and one was two were uh, lucky uh, strokes. Uh, well, Maxim uh, Clark, uh, I think you have a question. Yes, thank you. Nice to meet you, Ambassador. You just nice you. mentioned uh, WHO, and I wanted to know if what your feeling is about their part in this, and did you do you feel that we were America is uh, appropriately critical? Um, is it hurting the situation? Is it helping? 
And then one other thing that you mentioned just now that you had these systems in place, the pandemic uh, plan, and you had uh, a coordination. We have those things too. I mean, they just didn't get used, but they existed. And I'm curious if you know that in your pandemic research that you did, was that also in consort with America back when we set up ours that just didn't get read at this time? Were you involved in that? Was that a worldwide plan or just a Germany plan? Uh, a German plan. Healthcare business is national business, uh, is a national uh, uh, task. So it was national. It wasn't even European uh, um, because it's not. It doesn't fall within the competences of the European Union. Um, so that's the second part of the question. The WHO uh, um, uh, question is a very relevant one because it's true uh, that the WHO has. Uh, uh, glossed uh, uh, over the um, blatant uh, deficiencies uh, or, uh, lacks or lack of uh, uh, transparency uh, early on in the crisis and has uh, adopted uh, Chinese uh, narratives. Um, but oh, and we certainly have to uh, have to deal with that because, as I said before, uh, what in the aftermath of the crisis we absolutely need to have is. Uh, um, the highest degree possible uh, on why this occurred, how this occurred, at what stages uh, things went uh, awry, uh, and how the WHO or member states uh, uh, did contribute uh, to um, actually uh, fueling uh, the contagions, which in effect is what happened. But we need to know why. And for that, we need a review or whatever you call it, in inquiry, uh, and that dispassionately looks, uh, looks at analysis uh, of uh, facts. So there I'd agree. And I also agree uh, that we need to take the, uh, we need to draw conclusions on how to alter uh, the um, setup or the procedures uh, within the uh, WTO, how to organize accountability and how to organize member states uh, accountability. All, all of that needs to be looked at in a very disp uh, dispassionate uh, manner. But the question that uh, my country would have is, do you actually do that in the midst of a global health crisis? It seems to me that it's like changing a pilot uh, in, the midst of a f or in the midst of a flight. Uh, so we want to do it. Uh, we want to learn from the mistakes. Uh, we want clarity about, also for the WHO, that these, there needs to be clarity on that because the WHO needs that clarity too for its future handling of crisis. But undermining the uh, credibility, legitimacy, and uh, capability to act of an international, of the one international healthcare uh, organization uh, in, um, on the apex uh, of the largest healthcare crisis we've had in this century, and probably in the last, uh, um, that is something that we would caution against. I, I believe there's a lot of work going on in the uh, German pharmaceutical industry that's aimed at coming up with a vaccine. And some of that is in partnership with the uh, U.S. company. Uh, and of course, that's the real uh, salvation here. And yes. then, then we have to produce it in great numbers and all. But uh, so tell us um, about that, uh, if you would. How's that U.S.-German partnership going? And, and uh, uh, tell us about the company on the German end of it and uh, what your hopes are. Um, it's uh, the, comp the German company is Kuriavac. There are a couple of companies who are working on the vaccines, uh, but this company has uh, entered already test phase uh, and it is uh, um, uh, cooperating uh, 
uh, with an American partner and is being supported by SIPA, uh, uh, which is the um, pandemic, um, um, uh, the, the organization yeah. that was founded in the wake of the Ebola crisis back in 2017 right. and designed uh, to support va uh, vaccines and therapeutics. The SIPA um, right now is uh, supporting all in all nine uh, candidates for uh, vaccines. Uh, three of them are in uh, in the clinical tests, uh, uh, in the perhaps even more four, are in clinical uh, test uh, phases. So it's a race, and I think we, we'd all be served, frankly, uh, if um, the, the SIPA argument is you need several candidates uh, because you need to make sure uh, that whatever the results of those races, you have as many candidates, perhaps up to three, uh, uh, that can be used and can serve uh, um, to um, uh, respond the worldwide uh, need uh, for uh, getting uh, for making vaccines available. So my answer to you is yes. There's a very good cooperation. Um, the chances are uh, not bad because we wouldn't be in in phase one as yet. Uh, um, they're all, in all, to my knowledge, uh, three candidates in the United, or is it more? I think three candidates in the United States were additional uh, testing. So I hope we're in a good place. Only what, and people tell me we might have results uh, by uh, the end of the year, but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you'd have uh, mass production in place. Actually, it means we probably won't. Uh, uh, mass production will only. Uh, um, come then, which also has an, uh, um, makes a statement about uh, how, uh, well, it allows conclusions for the, uh, how the economies will uh, fare, because only once we have a vaccine, that uh, will be yeah. in return. Agreed. I, I want to report to you uh, that uh, I've seen comments from our participants as we're winding this up, ranging from the ambassador is really impressive to uh, someone else adding, she has just the right combination of candor and humility. And uh, <laughs> this is a tough group, so mo uh, not everyone who comes before us uh, gets that positive feedback. I wanna thank you. I wanna come back to one thing you said, which has longer term implications, and I'm very glad you said it, I was happy to hear it, which is, that in your view, notwithstanding some stumbling at the beginning, that uh, the European Union will come out of this pandemic uh, at least as strong as before and maybe stronger. Uh, and I think that's in the interest of the US and the world really because the EU has been uh, such a stabilizing uh, force in Europe uh, and um, a great partner for the U.S., uh, alongside NATO, obviously, uh, both economically and uh, in terms of diplomacy and uh, uh, security as well. So that, that, that's a good takeaway that will hopefully go along beyond the time when we get enough, we get a vaccine and enough of them to bring everybody back to health. Uh, and I appreciate your, uh, your pointing that out. Uh, please. Well, if you um, ask this, uh, if you ask this question to Germans, uh, they would also usually answer that every crisis uh, 
uh, has uh, reinforced uh, European cohesion, which I'm not quite sure you should believe. But <laughs> what I would say, what I would say is. Uh, uh, the European Union over the past 12 years, do we say, has been quite inward looking, dealing with the first the Euro crisis and then the migration crisis. But this crisis has brought something to the fore, uh, which perhaps not everyone realizes as yet, but I'm sure will. It has actually shifted the geopolitical balance. Uh, and if you look at the way uh, that China, and we haven't nearly not talked about Russia, uh, Russia see the crisis as an opening uh, um, for their geopolitical interests. I think the conclusion that the European Union will be forced to make is our um, foreign policy posture in the world needs to be much stronger if we actually want to defend uh, who we are, what we are, the way we cooperate. And for that, uh, um, we need uh, a strong foreign policy uh, identity and strength. And I think every European country will realize that because alone and on, uh, on our own, uh, uh, we would be infin infinitely weaker uh, uh, than in a collective uh, posture. So I think uh, the paradigm has changed, uh, the environment has changed, uh, and that's why I believe uh, we'll come out of the uh, uh, crisis uh, stronger. It's not uh, a belief or religion. Uh, in this case, it's the sheer necessity uh, of being able to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, obviously, that's good for uh, Europe, and I think it's good for the U.S. Uh, because um, we are still tied together closer than any with Europe than any other part of the world. Uh, and uh, part of that is that we have common origins, common values, com common civilizational values. They're not exclusive of other parts of the world, but they still do tie us together. So I think the stronger Europe is, uh, the better it is for the U.S. Um, thank you very much for an excellent discussion. Thanks to all our friends. We will end with applause. <laughs> thank and, uh, you. We'll see, see you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. And just in closing, may I say that for many years, for the many years that I visited the Munich Security Conference, you've always been a hero for me, too. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. I'll tell my wife you said that. <laughs> Ambassador Haber explains that Germany did have a head start on testing and fortifying its hospital infrastructure, and additionally, had a pandemic plan in place. As a consequence, the country only had to close those businesses that were client-facing. But Germany is staying vigilant because the decisions made by other European countries will inevitably affect the course of the virus in Germany in the months ahead. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.